Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck Live, the morning-ish show. On today's episode, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by Alexis Fraz. Alexis currently serves as a co-director of Helicon Collaborative. In her work, she is a researcher, strategist, and advisor to partners in culture, philanthropy, and the environmental sector, helping design and implement strategies to drive transformative change. Her perspective on systems change draws on her background in cultural anthropology, Chinese medicine, permaculture design, Buddhism, and martial arts. And as you soon will find out, she is passionate about bringing arts and culture into greater solidarity with broader movements working for social, ecological, and economic change. Her research with friend of the show, Holly Sidford, on socially engaged artistic practice has informed artist training curriculums and philanthropic programs worldwide. She is actively engaged in Helicon's ongoing work to confront structural inequities in the cultural sector, and we are honored that she's here to spend a couple minutes with us today. Without further ado, Alexis, welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be here. Oh, it's good to see your face. One of our favorite people to talk to. Likewise. So how are you and how's your community doing right now during the pandemic? I'm good. I feel really lucky, I think, as a lot of us do, who have jobs, who are healthy. So I feel pretty good. I'm a gardener. I'm a bit of a prepper, actually. So it's I feel validated in some ways. My friends are coming to me and asking for my canned goods and my tips on how to grow things. So I finally feel like I have a purpose. Um, so yes, yeah, it's all good. But of course, that's on a background of really being aware of the extent of the suffering that's in the larger community. So that's heartbreaking too. Just on the prepper and tips, what's the most frequent tip that you give people? Before we move into the broader conversation, deeper conversation, what's the most frequent tip you're giving your friends right now? Store food, store water. We're in earthquake country. So for us, it's really, I'm in California. So it's really important to have extra stuff. So my pantry before, I didn't have to make a Costco run. My pantry was full for months, which is just how I live. And that's just because I cook a lot. That's not all prepping. But so yeah, keep things around. Learn how to grow a garden if you've got space. I know, Tim, you probably don't do that in New York. I had one of those electric gardens, like the hydroponic gardens with the pods. yeah. But it's a small apartment, and those lights don't go off at night. So <laughs> it's like, you get like this floodlight coming into your sleeping space. That's torture, so, too. Yeah, it lasted yeah. one or two pod rounds, and we're like, it's not worth those cherry tomatoes and fresh basil from this thing. So right. I'm really enjoying the torture theme of this episode. It's really started <laughs> off weird, Lauren. Um, That's why the audience keeps coming back. This is what stresses me out. Yeah. <laughs> So as a fellow prepper, I feel like every good prepper has an apocalypse team. When you meet people, you have new friends, and you're kind of like thinking like, if things go left in the world, who am I taking with me? Do you currently have any openings on your apocalypse team? And if so, what skills are you looking for? Oh my God, that's such a good question. Well, first of all, Lauren, you're in. Yeah, I know. I want everybody's Um, apocalypse team. (laughs) entertainment Um, and axe throwing. What else do you need? Yeah, exactly. Right. No, I mean, the weapons thing, you know, I have to admit my apocalypse team tends more. I used to be, I studied martial arts. So I used to feel confident in that piece of it, but these days I'm pretty rusty. So I think if we actually needed to, I've got a ragtag band of sailors and cooks and very caring, gentle people. So I think we might need some of that. If anyone needs like a long distance cyclist on their team. Yeah. I mean, Bike mechanics, that's a valuable skill. I didn't say bike mechanics. I said long distance. Well, you're going to have to get there. I I know. I was was pushing you. you. That's true, right? I could change flat tires for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Just to keep keep this going. Yeah. 
Uh, speaking of systems change, we had the opportunity to chat a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that came up was that we talk about systems change a lot. People talk about systems change in various ways. And few people, I should say few people, it feels like more nowadays, people are actually starting to see systems that they might otherwise not have seen. And I'm curious to get your thoughts, Alexis, on this is something that you spend a lot of time thinking about, how the systems work, how the systems don't work, what we can do to use this as an opportunity to create better systems for us in the future so that more people can thrive. I'm throwing out a really wide question to get us off of the topic of me not being able to be a team member for your team. So we're going to take a hard left here and come into a different topic. Yeah, I do think a lot about systems change. And I think it's tough because right now is the moment when a lot of people are looking and A, seeing that we live in a system. We either we see the systems around us falling apart. So we're aware of them in ways that we might not otherwise be. And this is middle class or upper class people. I think that people who live with broken systems every day understand that they're broken and they know that they're victims of them. But more people are seeing that and that's a real opportunity. And at the same time, it's daunting to think about how to actually influence change in those systems. But I do think there's some really interesting things that are giving me hope right now about that because we're seeing ideas that were so fringe even six months ago, whether it's, well, I mean, we had Andrew Yang talking about basic income, but I don't think people were taking that very seriously. Universal healthcare has been a struggle. The idea of eliminating debt has been something that fringe groups have been working on, but now people understand why that matters. So I think there is this opening where people are suddenly understanding why those things affect us all. Earlier this week, maybe yesterday, the days are blending together. The Wallace Global Fund sort of published a piece in USA Today that talked about the need to increase foundations giving to the 10%. And I was wondering if, I mean, you work with such a wide range of organizations. Do you think that's another idea that might gain traction in the coming weeks and months? I hope so. I mean, I think people who are promoting that are saying, well, what are we waiting for? Are we going to wait until it gets much worse? I work in the environmental space as well. And people who work on climate change have been saying that for a long time because it's only going to get more expensive. The dollars are going to go less far, the worse things get. So I really hope that that is something that is taken seriously. I think there have been funders who have been spending down for a long time. So there's precedent for that. But the majority are pretty conservative about wanting to preserve their endowments. And at times when the endowments are already shrinking because of the market, often that accentuates the conservatism. That article is really interesting with some stats that I hadn't seen before. For those working in the space, it might not be new. For those unfamiliar with it, usually foundations give out about 5% a year of their investment corpus. And the idea is the Waltz Fund was arguing up to 10%. The really interesting thing that I found was of the it's like 85, 86,000 private foundations with about 900 billion in assets. And for every additional percentage point, it's about 12.5 billion in added foundation spending a year. And the article in the USA Today was arguing or proposing not an indefinite requirement to go to 10%, but if you did this over, say, a three year where everyone had to give 10%, it would throw off like an additional $800 billion or something, maybe it's $200 billion. My math this morning is this is not fast enough yeah. for this. Yeah, I think it was two with a lot of zeros behind it. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the other piece of that is what are they going to spend it on? Because 
I mean, we work with a lot of foundations and I think they do the best they can. And I think right now, a lot of foundations are really struggling with that sort of Hunger Games feeling of Mm -hmm. who do we pick to survive and who doesn't get to survive. But the reality is that the majority of philanthropy goes to the margins. I mean, it goes to sort of the band-aids of the problems that are actually structural. And so I think we also need to have a conversation about how philanthropy actually supports the systems change that we need so that the problems don't exist 10 years from now and not just spreading the money around a little bit further than they're doing right now. I'm holding a couple of different things at the same time. One being what we're seeing with PPP and with government support. They said like 95% of Black businesses were locked out of the Paycheck Protection Program. And then over the last couple of years, a lot of friends, Ashford Schultz, Zebras Unites, all these organizations have sort of sprung up talking about the lack of capital for women and minority-owned businesses generally. And it's becoming pretty clear that the philanthropic sector, as you know, and as the work Hillicon's done, is remarkably discriminatory towards Black and brown people. <laughs> like the data has not really moved a whole lot. But at the same time, with the disappearance of like funding, traditional debt funding or CDFI money, it's like philanthropy might be the only place where small businesses, Black and brown businesses, nonprofits can actually find capital for some of the systems change work. And so there does, for me right now, this is like one of those moments of urgency that I'm hearing, but I don't know if I'm seeing the dollars flow as quickly as they probably should in this crisis. I don't know. I mean, you're probably right. I'm sure they're not flowing as fast as they could or should. And they're definitely, I don't think they're flowing to the organizations that are doing systems change in the quantities of money that need to be there for systems change. I think that we know the Center for Cultural Innovation, we know is spending some money on entities that are trying to prototype new models for getting capital to communities in different ways and different looking at worker cooperatives, for example, and things like that. But they're prototyping. The money needs to flow in much bigger quantities and much faster to those types of things to really make the systems change. I've been making space to meditate and contemplate if I were in the role of foundation president with Mm. sitting on assets And I think to your earlier point, those working in foundations are caring. They care about the work that they do, the people that they work with, and oftentimes are working with systems themselves that they're struggling with speed and innovation. But I was thinking like in this moment in time, this feels different. And would I, as a foundation president, argue for, we need to spend as much money as we possibly can right now to try and move the needle on this versus continue to drip it out in perpetuity, essentially, essentially the go big or go home. And what might that mean for us to actually affect change rather than sort of hitting around the edges, if you will. But I, mean, I don't have a perfect answer. I'm glad I'm not in a foundation president role right now. <laughs> but it has been this thought experiment that I've been wrestling with. If you found yourself in the role of being a foundation president with $10 billion or so, how might you approach that? Unequivocally, I think now is the time to spend the money. I mean, I think we are both for the crisis that we're in, which is not just COVID. I mean, I think COVID is the sort of spark that lit the fire. But we know that, I mean, Naomi Klein, who I really love, the Canadian journalist who talks a lot about climate change and systems, talks about how normal was a crisis for a lot of people. And it is. And I think that especially with climate kind of coming down more on us, I think now is the time to make the changes that we need to make so that we can have the better future that we know is possible. And so 
I think there's the crisis piece of it, but there's also the opportunity piece of it, as I was saying. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that are already moving that need a push and with a push could really tip things, whether it's politically or in terms of the social safety nets that we have, which never should be in the realm of foundations permanently. I mean, that's something that the money will never be enough as we're seeing, even with the bailout bills. So we need that to be something that's institutionalized in our system. We're going to circle back to a question from a friend of the show, a friend of ours. For those organizations just coming to a more systems view in this pandemic, what are some quote unquote ways in to that thinking that you suggest from your own practice? Oh, tough question from the friend. We're always part of multiple systems. So we've got our family system. We've got, we think in systems all the time. We just don't, we're not conscious that we are, but we're part of our neighborhood. We're part of our organization and the art system and then the bigger system. So I think it can be interesting to map that and just really understand kind of who you influence and what influence you're having. And I think the arts has been really interesting because they think of their own system as a system, but they don't see the lower down entities like the artists or the people as part of their system. And they don't see the big meta systems. And so the arts tends to think it can influence its own system without attending to those other things. So I think it's really, in some ways, it's just about listening and kind of reflecting first and foremost about influence. Yeah. Also in the systems thinking, I've always found it helpful to really inventory all the assumptions that go into it, Mm. into what you think a system is. And I'm wondering, are you seeing people making assumptions about what's going to happen next or that are impacting their ability to act right now? So for instance, the assumption that we are going to open up again or that things are going to go back to normal. I do. I mean, I think a friend of ours, uh, Tim knows Josh Yates said right at the beginning of this, he said, people are either relating to this as a snow day, a long winter or an ice age. And depending on how you see it depends completely. I mean, it completely changes how you act. And I think we're all kind of knowing now that we're not in a snow day. It's gone on too long. But I think the idea of it being, is this just a long winter and then we would open back up and things are the same more or less? Or is this a fundamental shift in paradigms of how we live? And I think those really do affect the way we're dealing with it. And I think I'm firmly in the Ice Age camp, (laughs) even though that's sort of a dire metaphor, (laughs) because I think there's a lot of beauty that actually could come out of this. But I think now is the time to start preparing for that. And some of that is really part of it is what do we want to keep? What's essential right now? And like, what can we actually do we need to let go of either because it doesn't serve us anymore, or it's just not going to work in the future that we see coming to be now. There's a lot of grief in that that I think needs to be acknowledged and a lot of fear about the unknown, which is I think why people try to hang on to the thing that they're used to is it's better than the alternative, but maybe it's not better than the alternative. And maybe we can make a better alternative if we kind of step into that unknown space, but it's scary. I'm also wondering along those same lines of Ice Age, what are some of the beautiful things that you think can come out of this practically? Well, some of it we're already seeing. It's like that quote of the future is already here. It's not evenly distributed. It's like the mutual aid stuff that is coming out of this on the community level where people are seeing their system. They're seeing that and they're And that's always been something that I think vulnerable communities that haven't had, whether it's rural communities from a really rural place or communities of color, immigrant communities have always supported each other that way. So that's beautiful, I think. And I think that the many, many entities and organizations that have worked both in the arts and not 
kind of building the grassroots social infrastructure that mm-hmm. is now being called on to support their communities. And we're seeing the relevance of that and how that protects and cares for people. So the awareness around the care economy and the care yeah. work, I think is really positive. And then the ideally the bigger political shifts and the shifts in systems that we were talking about before. I mean, I do really see that as a possibility if we push for it. The caring economy is, I was talking to Jess Solomon a couple of weeks ago and was sort of lamenting the fact that I wasn't, not lamenting, I actually like not being super close to my family. But I was saying that if I were closer, the interactions we'd be having would be so much different. And now I'm realizing that I'm using capital in exchange for care. So instead of bringing mm-hmm. grocery to my aunt's house, I'm sending groceries. So there's this weird thing that's happening about how care shows up. And I'm also thinking a lot about what's happening on reservations right now. And so so many folks on the reservations out here in New Mexico don't have running water. And one of the interesting infrastructure pieces is because they don't have water, they've been doing water deliveries for years. There's been members of the community who are now working with Dig Deep and other organizations. But in some ways, that system that was already in place as a form of long care mutual aid is in some ways like sort of a guiding light or like a one of very few positive spots in what's happening on reservations right now. So I'm really hopeful about the strength of those systems that have been an outcrop of the failure of government to provide running water in the United States, but they're there. Thank right. goodness. Well, and you're making an interesting point because it's like, how do we not make those systems the only safety net that people have, but also not try to replace them with capital or with government so that people don't have those systems because there's something that beyond just getting your basic needs met that comes from those. I mean, there's a sense of community trust and camaraderie and connectedness that comes from that on both sides, on the giver and the receiver side, which often goes back and forth. So I think that's really beautiful. I was talking to a friend in the Bay Area who runs a large regenerative food organization, startup. And she said something that surprised me yesterday around our food system. In essence, everything I've read since the US food system is completely screwed. But she said, actually, like when you get boil it down to its basics, in terms of people, most people being able to get the calories they need to survive a day, like our system is working. And mm. she was like, so many of us think about the system as being, are you having healthy food, organic food and everything else? She's like, but in a crisis, you have to go back to the basic level. So it is working. And I was so surprised by her, that perspective because she's like a plant forward, super healthy, organic person. Are there things that have surprised you in the last few months? That are working? That are working. Like things that you, like your early prediction said, this shit's yeah. going to... That was my first curse word. Oh, God. Um, no, I, I got to go back I was worrying about curses because I curse a lot, too. Right? Yeah, that was my <laughs> first one. This uh. is the benefit of us having a podcast prior to the live stream because you can edit those things out before they go online. The live stream, you're living on the edge a little bit, which stresses me out. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Tim. But are there things that you thought would systems that you were fairly certain that would break that have actually held up? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I think in some ways, we're, it's too early to tell. And right now we're seeing the breakdown of more than we're seeing the... I mean, I think in some ways, the artists that are coming together around mutual aid is so just hard. Like you guys probably know about the level up work that Taylor Mac started, the mm-hmm. getting well-known artists to do things online and then have people pay for that, but then giving the money to people who are not well-known. And I think just the idea that none of these artists are rich, but they're going beyond asking philanthropy for the money that they need to finding the support for themselves. And I think that's how artists have always worked. But in this time, you would expect that to break down and it didn't. If anything, I think it's strengthening. Lexis, what are you doing for your own resilience and self-care right now? 
Is it similar? Yeah. Is it different from what it was three months ago? It's pretty similar. I mean, I think other than spending time with friends, but I meditate daily. I bike also, Tim, cycle. And I was actually supposed to be training for the AIDS life cycle right now, and which got canceled. But so I'm still trying to keep up my fitness and not let everything go to waste. But you know, it's funny though, I actually have a problem with the word self-care, just the concept as it's used in our culture, because I think that it is typically presented as like, you do the things that kind of kill you during the day, you work really hard or whatever, and then you have to care for yourself. And so then that's separate from all the other things you do, which are caring for others, doing your work in the world. And I think this is my edge because I'm not always good at this, but for me, it's about how can we have a more integrated life where care is woven into it and we're not burning ourselves out. And that's part of the paradigm of our culture, right? It's that extractive mindset where it's like, I can burn myself out and then I just rebuild myself up again so I can do it again tomorrow. (laughs) I'm trying to make more space in my days. And I think especially with the Zoom life, we have to do that. Make more space in your days to go out in the garden or take a walk or talk to a friend or whatever it is and not feel guilty about that. I think this is one of the things that I'm hopeful for. At the same time that now that people's lives and work and caring and everything is like all in one place for most people. And that can be really hazardous and toxic if people now have homes that are toxic workplaces. It does, on a certain level, give people an opportunity to see all of these things together in a way that when you went to the office, you could separate that thing. And my hope is that people have space to question, why is it that I do all these things in this way? And is this how I want my life to be? And where do I have agency to change things in order to create? And we've talked about this, the three of us before, a place where everyone can thrive, but that really aligns with our values and a sense of purpose, if that's important to us. But yeah, I think you're right. These often have lived in different buckets and you try to make sure that they all sort of work in concert. And now all those buckets are in the same place. And the other thing I'll just say about that is I think that when we're talking about the world we want to create, like if we're trying to really create the new, which I think we're in that phase of the cycle, we can only do that from a place of being transformed internally and being stable, being grounded, being heartful, all of that. It's not just a like, because it makes us feel good thing. It's like for the effectiveness of the work we're trying to do in the world, we have to work on ourselves and be sort of transformed from that kind of extractive lifestyle. I also have similar issues with the term self-care. And I keep thinking, going back to the mutual aid piece, like it's been cool to see so many of my friends sort of be awakened to how they can. And I mean, a lot of my friends are lawyers, lobbyists, people who are more accustomed to writing a check than (laughs) to actually getting their hands dirty with work and seeing them awaken to the pleasures of actually lending a hand in their community has been like, that's not the requirement of like pro bono hours or anything else has been so cool talking to them about it. I think that's just a really important component. I hope that service and community involvement becomes core to a lot more people's how they spend their time during the day. Well, speaking of transformation from this moment, we're coming up on time and this means Lauren, it's time for your suitcase question. Dum, dum, dum. (laughs) (laughs) It's starting to take on like, as you introduce it, like this ominous quality. It's just your suitcase question. (laughs) It's it's probably the mic I'm using. I'm sorry. Yeah, I like it. It adds a little something. So Alexis, you've been carrying around a suitcase with you for your whole life. There's stuff that's been in there for years, behaviors, habits, 
things you do every day, ways you work that during the pandemic, you realize you don't need anymore. And it's, they're never going back in your suitcase. And conversely, there are probably some behaviors and habits and things that you have fallen in love with during the pandemic and that you're going to do from now on. So can you give us one thing that's coming out of your suitcase and one thing that's going in your suitcase? I think coming out would be control. The idea that I can be in control of the world and my world. So kind of flowing with life a little bit more because right now we just can't control anything. And then going in, I mean, I think what we've been talking about with this embodied living, I think being in my garden is just so incredible. And I think finding ways so that the energy and even the practice comes into my life, my work life more and kind of infuses it, I think is really a key piece of what I want to practice going forward. Awesome. Alexis, it's always wonderful spending time with you. Yes. It's so good to see you guys. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Continue the Work Shouldn't Suck live adventure with us on our next episode when we're joined by Mark Bamudi-Joseph and Lisa Yancey. Miss us in the meantime? You can download more Work Shouldn't Suck episodes from your favorite podcasting platform of choice and rewatch Work Shouldn't Suck live episodes over on workshouldn'tsuck.co. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.